Good morning. Happy New Year. It's Sunday, January 3rd, the Festival of the Epiphany of Our Lord. Today we're going to look in our service how what comes to light at Epiphany, and light is one of the key themes this time of year, is mercy. God's mercy comes to light, displayed in Jesus Christ, and then in turn displayed in the lives of his people. God bless you today in your worship. As you hear from God's word, take it to heart and put it into practice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let us confess our sins to the Lord. Holy God, gracious Father, I am sinful by nature, and have sinned against you in my thoughts, words, and actions. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved others as I should. I deserve your punishment both now and forever. But Jesus, my Savior, paid for my sins with his innocent suffering and death. Trusting in him, I pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Our gracious Father in heaven has been merciful to us. He sent his only Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, as a called servant of Christ, and by his authority, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In peace let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house, and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, by the leading of a star, you once made known to the nations your one and only Son. Guide us also, who know him now by faith, to come at last to the perfect joy of your heavenly glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. The reading is Romans chapter 11, verses 13 to 15 and 28 to 32. All are bound to disobedience that all might be shown mercy. This reading is the basis for today's sermon. I am talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? As far as the gospel is concerned, They are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The psalm of the day is Psalm 72. 
Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, who alone does marvelous deeds. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. The Holy Gospel is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Jesus is revealed by the star as the king of all nations. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ.
Romans chapter 11 contains some of the most intensely debated and uniquely difficult passages in the entire New Testament, and that's due largely to what the Apostle Paul was wrestling with in this middle part of his letter to the Romans. Basically, the question is this, how do we make sense of the marvelously stupefying wonder of God's work, including the kind of people he saves? Specifically, Paul is grappling with what the Christian churches are observing on this festival called Epiphany, that vast numbers of non-Jews, the Gentiles that is, would stream in to enjoy the blessings of salvation that many, if not most, had assumed was the unique heritage of the Israelite nation. Now, I recognize that for us who are so far removed from the cultural context of Paul's setting, For us, it can be a challenge to get a grasp on the distress and the wonder of Paul's words, but I think it's still vital for us to sense anew both the spiritual disruption and the inner delight of the epiphany, that when when mercy matters more than merit, then what happens is pride gets excluded and delight takes its place. Now, anyone who has listened to the biblical teaching in this congregation over the years knows very well that perhaps the defining spiritual malady of the first century Jewish world was an overweening sense of religious pride. In fact, much of what Jesus said and did amounted to a full frontal attack on their sense of superiority. And this isn't some Christian propaganda to make the people who eventually crucified Jesus look worse than they really were. There's evidence, for example, that first-century Jews considered the mere intent to keep God's law the equivalent of actually keeping it. Now, I, I look, I mean, you see this, and it's, it's not hard to conclude, if that's what you believe, that you must be God's favorite when you also believe that just wanting to be God's favorite basically makes it true. But not so well-known is the not-so-flattering fact that even the Gentiles rapidly found new ways to take religious pride and gain a sense of spiritual superiority. Gentile believers would point to what food they did or didn't eat, what festivals they did or didn't celebrate, or what history they did or didn't have, as evidence of their newly favored status as God's favorite people. And the Apostle Paul had to address this sad state of affairs throughout his writings to the early churches, including in this letter to the Roman Christians. Earlier in Romans, he's been explaining how being Jewish doesn't make you better off before God, And here in Romans chapter 11, he's explaining that being Gentile doesn't make you better off either. In fact, Paul goes as far as saying, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all, which is a repetition for something he had said earlier in the letter, that all have sinned and all fall short, all are bound in their sin. Now, Paul is confronting the fact that people who achieve some sort of blessing— inevitably look for a distinguishing characteristic in themselves as the reason for their good fortune. This kind of boasting happens in every culture. For Jews, it was keeping the Mosaic Law. For Greeks, it was their wisdom and philosophy. For Romans, it was their military and administrative might. And we've got our own version, too. In our culture, there, are, there tends to be only one allowable explanation for any development in life, whether good or bad. Somehow, something in me is the reason, something in my effort— something in my character, something in my, my trying harder and doing better. It's all in me. And that kind of thinking makes perfect sense to the American mind. But to Paul in the scriptures, it's nothing but nonsense. In the apostolic view, 
everyone is bound to disobedience by a sinful mind and corrupt nature that erases any advantage we might think we have. And this leaves divine mercy as the only possible way we can find from God the peace of forgiveness and the security of identity we so desperately need. In fact, mercy is the only reason we have anything that we have. But that's distressing to think about, isn't it? I mean, if that's true, it means we can't hang our spiritual hat on a hook that's anchored somewhere in us. Even more, if it's true, then you and I have been rescued in this life from the worst effects of bondage to disobedience. If that's true, then how dare we look down on others who need the same rescue we've already received, and yet don't we often look down at others? That even the Jews could so badly miss the spiritual boat broke Paul's heart, and the fact that you and I can also so badly miss the same boat is really cause for all of us to repent. And that's what makes Epiphany uh, spiritually disturbing in a way. The, the, the Magi are so unexpected and obscured, it just kind of rattles us. And yeah, we'll trace all sorts of historical threads to make some sense of the Magi. In fact, I've, I've done that in the past here at Redeemer. But at its heart, the celebration of Epiphany is kind of weird. You've got these these pagan sorcerers, these magical Christmas wizards who seem to have no advantage of any kind, little preparation, and no real actual right to meet the king of the Jews. And nevertheless, who are they? They're the vanguard, the very first wave of many billions of Gentiles who have since come to receive the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's just remarkable. Mercy is the only explanation For the Magi, mercy is the only explanation for the Gentile church. Mercy is the only explanation for you and for me. God in his mercy, in his mercy, dispatched his only son to upend our expectations and release us from the bondage we were born in. He did that by taking our place. The the chains of sin that once shackled us, they're the ones that hung him from the cross. And the cords of death that once entangled us brought him down to the grave. It's a marvelously stupefying wonder that God would die for sinners. But there it is, right in front of us. God's mercy is what matters, not what we bring to the table. Mercy matters more than merit. And because that's true, then what Paul's telling us is we're going we're gonna to have to set aside all our pride. It's just excluded. But the thing is, when pride is excluded, there's room for something else to take its place, for the surprising delight of God's mercy. The delight. As distressed as Paul was over the unexpected reversal of spiritual fortunes in God's work of redemption, he took great delight in his ministry to the unexpected Gentiles. And I happen to think we would do well to reclaim some of that delight ourselves. You see, when it comes to life in this little outpost of Christ's heavenly kingdom, we're tempted to look at our setting and say, oh man, there's just no way the church can survive here, let alone flourish. I mean, you know, this is California, you've got all these different cultural trends, whether they're ethnic cultures, they're maybe political cultures or or spiritual cultures, it's just all mixed up. And people believe all sorts of, frankly, crazy things, right? And... (laughs) And we'll think, this just can't work. And we'll sometimes comfort ourselves with the idea that, well, okay, maybe, maybe this part of California is relatively conservative. There's a military family influence. We're in San Diego County, which is more sensible, at least, than the folks in the Bay Area. It's as if we're actually convinced that there are more Lutherans in certain parts of the world because they have the same advantages 
as us, that, you know, the kind of sociological things that made us good candidates for, to be God's favorite for conversion. But again, that kind of thinking completely ignores the implications of epiphany. The epiphany understanding of church that Paul reveals today means every person outside of Christ, every person, even the, what, we, what Christians often call a seeker, they're still actually hiding from the voice of Christ and doing so to their own damnation. Even if they have every other proverbial duck in a row, they're still hiding from the voice of Christ. But the epiphany understanding of church also means that the Spirit of God speaks through the voice of Jesus in the gospel, and that can transform any heart. That can bring even these strange magi with their strange beliefs and their, their, their foreign culture, it can bring them right into the kingdom of Christ. And that's the delight of epiphany, that God does what human wisdom could never dream of, let alone accomplish. The Lord said it through the prophet Isaiah, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The church doesn't look like you and it doesn't look like me because looks aren't what matter before God. It's not about our ethnic heritage. The church doesn't think like you or think like me because human ideology and politics are not relevant to salvation. The church doesn't work the way you think or the way I think because the way you and I think is bound to disobedience by nature. God, what he does is he calls the strangest of people to his kingdom. He turns our fallen spiritual logic upside down. He uses the strangest of Gentiles to expand his kingdom in the past. And, he, and it may well be that the people we so easily write off as, as just too far from the kingdom of God, even if they live right in our own town, they will actually be the ones God uses to evangelize our grandchildren our neighbors, and generations to come. With the delight of epiphany in our hearts, we can be, be kind toward the people around us and have patience as we press on with the good news that to this day there is a ruler from Bethlehem who has come to shepherd his people. He is the king long promised, and he is for all. Amen. Now the peace of God which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Litany of the Magi As the Magi of old followed the star, help us, O Lord, to follow the leading of your Spirit as he comes to us through word and sacrament. As they were led to the Savior, lead us, O Lord, to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. As they brought treasures to the King, empower us, O Lord, to bring gifts of faith and hope and love to the world. As they fell down and worshipped the child, inspire us, O Lord, to serve him every moment of our lives. As Herod was kept from doing him harm, keep us, O Lord, from doing violence to his name, by thought or word or deed. As Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, 
Enable us, O Lord, to remember your word and promises. As your sun shines forever as the light of the world, shine forth in us, O Lord, that we may be lights of the world in our generation. Holy Jesus, come from God. Fill us now and always with your light. Amen. The Lord's Prayer Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen.